I'd like to read the passage that I believe the Lord has for us today, and then we'll open in prayer. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to You as Your people purposefully here for the assembling together of the body. Lord, You have called us as Your children. You have brought us together as family. You have given us one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We belong to one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. We belong to You. And so we ask that You would open Your Word, that we would have open eyes and open ears and open hearts and open minds, that we might hear You, that we might know Your truth, that we might be convicted, that we might know what You are saying to us this morning, both in comfort and in call. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that the outcome would be that You would be glorified, that You would be honored, Your kingdom would be built, and that we would both delight in You and know Your love for us. Lord Jesus, please speak to us today. Spirit, please change us, transform us, and send us out to minister to build Your kingdom. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. As we get started, I want to mention that there are three points that are going to be coming from this passage. The the first of which is, be who you are. The second of which is, who are we? And the third of which is making every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, be who you are. Who are we? And making every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So as we look at the question of being who we are, what we're really talking about is integrity. Integrity has a sense in our culture today of of some sort of moral compliance. If you look it up in the dictionary, it talks about having a strong moral code. But integrity really has to do with the word integrated. And many of you guys work with circuitry that is integrated. It's got one complete cycle, it's got one complete circuit, and, and it's, it's necessary that it not be interrupted. For us, as we live with integrity, what we're really doing is being who we are. An integrated individual is one who is complete. I have dealt with people who have been diagnosed with what's called multiple personality disorder. I had to work with one woman who, from the age of seven, was, in her own mind, multiple personalities inhabiting the same body. What what had happened in her life was that she had gone through such a traumatic experience at seven years old that, that she did what's called dissociation. She she had one part of her personality who had to live with and deal with the effects of that trauma, and she had another part of her personality that was untouched. That's the antithesis of integrity. 
That's the antithesis of being an integrated whole person. When we speak of living with integrity, what we're talking about is really the simple phrase, be who you are. Where we struggle with integrity today is in the comparison between an outcome and living with integrity. Which will we focus upon? Are we more concerned that we know what is going to happen and bring that desired outcome to pass? Or will we live with integrity and follow God and be the man, the woman, the young man, the young woman that he calls us to be and leave that outcome for him? To give you a biblical example of a man who lived with integrity, we can look at the story of David. You recall that Saul had been king. Saul had, had um, taken two different courses of action in 1 Samuel 13 and 1 Samuel 15, and, and as a result, God had said that he would bring a man after his own heart to be the king, to anoint him and, and to have him serve as God's ruler over Israel. Now, David, David was the young man that was anointed by Samuel. Um, David, after that anointing, went and defeated Goliath. David was called to serve in Saul's palace as one who could play the harp and the lyre to calm Saul when he was disturbed. Saul knew that he would not continue in his reign. David knew he was the next anointed. But David was in that very difficult position of being the anointed of the Lord while there was still a living anointed of the Lord. And so at one point as David was running around in the wilderness and gathered a group of men to serve with him, he was taking an afternoon rest in a cave. And, and into this cave where David's men already were with their weapons, ready for whatever came, Saul walked in alone to take a nap. Now, David's men came to David and said, David, God has given you Saul. He's placed him within your control. Kill him. It'll be over. There will be no more civil war. All of our problems will go away. Now, that's a pretty desirable outcome. To think that you who have been living off the land and hiding for years can go home, can be safe, can take that position to which God has called you and anointed you, and all you've got to do is kill the one God has put in your control. But David said to his men, far be it from me. The Lord anointed Saul, and the Lord will take Saul out. It is not ours to do. And so David did cut a small part of Saul's tunic, just to show that he had been close enough to slit something else. And when Saul left, David cried out to him and said, Saul, I, you were in my hands. I could have killed you. I don't want to kill you. David lived with integrity because he knew that although that outcome was a wonderful outcome and it was God's intended outcome, think about that for a moment. God had said Years back, I will find a man whose heart is for me. And I'll place him on the throne. But David understood God well enough to know that it was God's responsibility to address the issue of Saul. God wanted Saul gone, but God wanted Saul gone in God's way. 
And so David, in that cave, obeyed and lived with integrity, recognizing that the outcome, even though it was God's outcome, was to happen in God's time. And that it was not his to take matters into his own hand. Paul is writing to us here in Ephesians, and what he says is, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's a little bit technical, but the idea is that of a scale. When he talks about walking worthy, what he's talking about is is to keep that scale in balance so that here is my identity in Christ and here is my calling and walking. I live in balance with who I am. In other words, I am being who God has created me to be. I'm living with integrity. The key thought there is, am I more focused on the outcomes or am I more focused on my integrity? David clearly was focused on integrity and his heart was for the Lord. God brought about the outcome that God intended in God's time. So I encourage you to think about how to live with integrity, obedient to God, regardless of what it may cost you, because your integrity is what keeps you in God's purposes. Another example of one who lived with integrity is Abraham. You recall that when when Abraham was 75, God promised him a descendant through whom he would give him descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky or the, the sand on the beach. That God intended to bless the entire world through Abraham and through his descendants that would come through Isaac. And so as Isaac finally was born when Abraham was about 100 years old, a 25-year wait for Isaac to come. God finally came to Abraham as Isaac was now an adolescent and said, I want you to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham had to balance integrity with outcome. Abraham had to worry about whether or not God was going to accomplish the promises that God had already given him. But Abraham lived with integrity. And he went to the mountain. He took Isaac. And as he was ready to sacrifice Isaac, God stopped him and said, enough. Here's here's the ram. Offer the sacrifice. I'm grateful. You have seen your integrity. We read in Hebrews, in the Hall of Fame of Faith, that that Abraham's perspective was that God was going to, if necessary, raise the dead. God had made a promise that through Isaac, Abraham's descendants would come. And so Abraham knew that if God did call him to sacrifice Isaac, that God intended to raise the dead because God could. And so Abraham, in this one circumstance, very clearly lived with integrity and trusted the outcome to God. So how does that affect us today? What does it mean for us to live with integrity? I want to look at it in two different ways, and then we'll move on to the next point. But the first way that we don't live with integrity is when we, when we wrestle with unbelief. I had a conversation with my 25-year-old son this week. He's looking for a position in, in Maryland, he's, he's moving from being a server to being a career person. And one of the positions that he was looking at was going to lead to being a financial planner. 
So he, he talked to me and he said, Dad, the, the first time I took the survey, the results came back minimal fit. It's a fit. They wanted me to interview a second time, but they said, why don't you take the survey again? Now, now my son is a very people-oriented person, and what he had done in that first attempt at the survey was to speak honestly. What they were saying was, we want our records to reflect that you're a better fit than this survey says, so we would like you, without really saying it, to do a better job at the survey. Now, he knows exactly what kinds of answers they're looking for. He could read the survey. And, and if he wanted to, he could be a stellar fit, according to the survey. But for him to live with integrity is to give an honest answer to the survey. For him to look to the outcome is to give what they want. And then they would gladly move him into a position that he might not last in because the truth of the matter is he's not a stellar fit. So one of the places that we are really prone to present ourselves differently than we are is in a job interview, um, on a first date, in, in, in a social setting. High school, college reunions. You'll come back and you'll present yourself as a stellar success because you want people to see you in a particular way. Wherever the outcome is too important to leave to chance, we are tempted to set aside our integrity and to pursue the outcome. In another way, we look at, at living with integrity, and I think it's more the way that Paul is talking about today, which is to fail to understand who we are and try to measure up. What Paul is saying in all of the book of Ephesians, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he's talking about who we are in Christ. It's called the indicatives. This is who you are. You are saved by grace through faith and not by works. You are blessed in chapter 1 with all the blessings necessary. You're grafted in. We who are not by nature Jewish believers are grafted into the body of Christ and, and we have these blessings that God has poured out lavishly upon us. So, in light of these blessings, he now starts in chapter 4, verse 1, live in balance with who you are. In other words, live with an integrity for who you are. And, and where we tend not to do that is if you look at Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so what he's talking about is that tendency that we have as we look at the law, as we look at God's teaching, as we look at ourselves, to begin to think that we have to measure up. And so we receive the Spirit by faith, not by works of the law. But having received the Spirit, we are tempted to continue our life in Christ by obedience. When, when he's speaking of the flesh in this case, what he's really talking about in the NASB is translated by human effort. Are you trying to sanctify yourselves? In, in one church that I, I was preaching on this passage in Galatians, the, the title of the sermon was Sanctified by Grace. 
And the elders came to me before the service and said, you, you, you mean justified by grace, don't you? We all know that we're justified by grace. I said, no, if you look at this passage, it speaks not only of the justification of receiving the Spirit, it speaks of the sanctification of living by the Spirit. Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being made perfect? Are you now being completed? Are you now finishing by means of human effort? And aren't we tempted to do that? Aren't we tempted to look at what Scripture tells us and, and move forward with a desire to accomplish what we're called to do? But I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, because I think this is a misunderstood passage that I want to try and help us understand, and it speaks directly to this issue. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, for those of you who need help, in my Bible it's on page 1014. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." Now, in the English, there are a lot of imperatives that are, being, that are being said there. But there's really, in the Greek, only two imperatives. And one's an active imperative, and one is a passive imperative. The only active imperative in this entire passage is in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the only thing that we're commanded to do that is, is ours to do in our own right is to focus our hope. And where do we focus that hope? We don't focus that hope on our performance. We don't focus that hope on being perfect. We focus that hope on the revelation of the grace that's given to us in Christ. And, and we tend to think in 1 Peter as we read it that it's talking about a future revelation of Jesus Christ. It's just spoken in the earlier verses preceding this passage of how Christ was revealed in His first coming. A coming that the angels longed to look into. A coming that the prophets were told was for our good and not theirs. It was, it was something that we would see and they would only hope in. There certainly is another coming. Jesus will return and our hope is fixed not only on the past revelation, but in the future revelation. But the truth of the matter is, our hope is focused on the grace given to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there is no time tied to that revelation in the Greek. It is both the past and the future. It is the hope we have because Jesus, the Redeemer, has come, has met the demands of the law, has redeemed us, and He's coming back for us. And so the thing that we're called to do is hope. Now, certainly we see that there are things that it says, do not be conformed to the passions, but as He who has called you is holy, so also you be holy. That's the passive imperative. He's not telling us actively to become holy. He's telling us that God intends to make us holy and we're to participate with God in the process of becoming holy. And then we look at, in verse 16, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So we can look at that and, and feel a pressure or a burden that what we have to do is somehow measure up to that standard of holiness. 
But the truth of the matter is that's not an imperative. It's a future indicative. If it's an imperative, it's a command that we have to fulfill. But as a future indicative, it's a promise of what God intends to do. And so as you read in 1 Peter, you see that God has said to you, hope. Focus that hope on the grace you receive in Christ. As a result of that hope, we recognize that God is at work to change us. God is at work to make us holy because we belong to Him and He is holy. That's what the redemption is all about. That's what Christ came to accomplish, was to bring about that that transformation, that sanctification of the, the believer that God will make us holy so we fit with Him And and it's not ours to accomplish. So again, going back to Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you being made perfect by the flesh? No. I'm being made perfect by the triune God who has redeemed me, is sanctifying me, and tends to take me home. And I can take comfort. I can hope in that message. When we try to measure up in our own strength, when, when we are busy trying to accomplish what God will accomplish, then we're not living in that equilibrium. We're not living in balance with our identity. God says, here's who you are. As a result of who I have made you to be, obey. Tim Keller is a a pastor that I really respect, and and as he was talking in one of his messages in a series of sermons on Galatians, he, he was talking about an event when he'd been a pastor early in his career back in Charlottesville, Virginia. And, and a man in his congregation came to him and said, Pastor Keller, do, do I have to forgive my sister to come to Christ? And Tim says, with, with a tone of sadness in his voice, to my shame, I told that man yes. The truth of the matter is, he has to come to Jesus to be able to forgive his sister because he doesn't have the resources in himself. He needs the grace of the gospel to be able to fully and really and honestly forgive his sister And so the issue is you need to come to Jesus for that strength and for that grace. You don't come in obedience and then receive whatever else you need. You come as a dependent, created sinner. And you receive the grace that you need in order to live the life God calls you to live. Having begun by the Spirit, we are made perfect by the Spirit. Point number two, who are we? Be who you are. Live with integrity. Live in balance with your identity. Focus on integrity and not outcomes. Point number two, who are we? Well, number one, as we look at the book of Ephesians, we see that we are redeemed people. In Him we have redemption. Chapter 1, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we're redeemed, we're forgiven, and we're united. That's what Ephesians teaches us. Now, understanding as well, we have to begin with that truth that not only are we redeemed, we're created. We are a dependent being. We didn't create ourselves. We can't define ourselves. We can't tell God who we are. We are created by an all-loving God who has given us an identity. 
In that identity, we have rebelled and fallen, and so we need to be redeemed. Ephesians points out that we are redeemed and that we are forgiven. Now let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer this aloud, but it's an important question for you to think about as as we discuss this point. Would you rather be forgiven or would you rather be right? Forgiven or right? Think about that for a moment. Think about the consequences of being right. If, if you have a discussion, a conversation with someone else, and your case is proven because you're right, how do you feel? In those rare cases, when I've experienced that wonderful experience, I am arrogant as can be. I am distant from the person I'm speaking with because I have righteousness. They have to not submit to me, although it feels like they do. They have to submit to the reality of my righteousness and the fact that, that objectively they have to concede their case. When, when I'm forgiven, I'm not the one in the upper position. I'm not the one who is able to say, see, I told you. When I'm forgiven, I may have that restored relationship, but I'm not right. I'm not able to be arrogant. I must be humble. When I'm forgiven, there is a reconciliation that can take place that says that we are knit together. And there's a deeper, richer relationship that I experience as forgiven than if I'm right. Because if I'm right, now it's the truth of my, my case that justifies me. It's not the forgiveness of the one I've offended. And so, my honest answer is I'd much rather be right. I don't need anyone if I'm right. But I'm called to repent of my sin. I'm called to accept forgiveness. And I'm called to deeper relationship with the body and with my Savior. If I'm right, Jesus is an ally. If I'm forgiven, Jesus is a Savior. I'm much closer to saviors than I am to allies. And so, who we are is redeemed and forgiven, both of which have to do with overcoming sin and distance. If I'm redeemed, it's because I am a sinner who has been healed, forgiven, and restored. And then the outcome, as we see in chapter 4, is that we are united. And and we see that even in chapter 1, as it talks about the fact that, that God has, through that redemption, lavished on us wisdom and insight, making known the mystery to us according to His purpose, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In chapter 4, we see that it says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. And that really helps us again to see that redemption as opposed to righteousness. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he lists those things that unite us. 
There is one body, the body of Christ. We tend to think of it in, in multiple divided experiences, but we are one with everyone who belongs to Jesus. One of the glories of singing ancient hymns is, is I, I have a, a hymn that I just love, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. It was written in about 1000 A.D. And the church for over 2100 years has sung that song in worship of the Savior we all adore. One body, one spirit. We each have the Holy Spirit. In Corinthians, we read that you can't say that Jesus is Lord if the Spirit doesn't indwell you and doesn't prompt you to confess that truth. So believers, Old Testament and New, have the Spirit of God and are united in their experience by that one Spirit. Just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, There is a unity that we experience as we come to Christ, as Christ redeems us, not just from sin, but to the body. A unity that is precious, and that Paul says, make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's a sense there, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, where we're called to labor diligently. We're called to work with everything that is in us to maintain unity. And we'll talk about that. But, But... Who we are is a part of that body. For you to live individually, for you to live in isolation, for you to separate from the body of Christ in whatever expression you find it, is for you to deny your identity and for you to live out of and away from integrity. Again, that integrity is for me to know who I am and to live in compliance with who I am, to be who I am. That's my calling. We must be in community. More and more churches today are understanding the importance of that community, that that the gathering on, on the Lord's Day is important, but it is not the end of community. And so there's more and more experiences of of groups, of fellowship groups, of, of home groups, of cell groups, of house church, whatever they call themselves, there's an experience of the body coming together in smaller multiples to be able to have a deeper and richer community experience to really be who we're called to be. And this passage is saying that, that you must be who you are. You live in balance with your identity. And it tells us through the book of Ephesians who we are. And so thirdly, we come now to the point of making every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's from the passage. It's verse 2. With all, um, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, it's not verse 2, I'm sorry, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That eagerness is really almost a gymnastic term, meaning a gymnasium. In, in, in Paul's world, there, there were places you would go to exercise. They're called gymnasiums. We do it today. We call them health clubs. But you go there with the purpose of being able to discipline your body with the idea of strengthening yourself so that you can accomplish a goal. And Paul's telling us his goal for the believer is to make every effort to diligently strain to sacrifice, to work, to use every bit of strength in you to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is not 
This is not just being eager like you're eager for Christmas. This is laboring diligently, making sacrifices, because you must live with integrity, and your identity is to be a part of the body of Christ. One spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism. And so, we have to recognize being human, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, that there is a default position that we have, which is to isolate. If you want to think about that, look at the story in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, were told, before the fall, were naked and unashamed. They had conversations with God face to face. There was nothing they were afraid that would be known and would cause an isolation or a distance. And then immediately after Eve eats and, and, and gives Adam the fruit to eat, they recognize they're naked and they try to clothe themselves. What is clothing but a distancing? And as they clothed themselves and, and hid, again, distancing, they isolated themselves from each other and from God. And the, the unity of the body was broken. And brothers and sisters, we do that 24-7. We're constantly looking at who can know this part of me, who can accept me if they know this, and if I don't believe somebody can accept me with the knowledge about me, I won't let them know that. Because my outcome of being accepted, my outcome of not being rejected is more important than my integrity. Brothers and sisters, we are created to be in an intimate, deep relationship with God. And in an intimate, deep relationship at varying levels, depending upon the, the context, with one another. It, I'm not saying that everything about you should be known by everybody, but I am saying that there is more that should be known than that we allow to be known. And, and so one of my positions in, in the church in Maryland where I served was to be the trainer of group leaders and to lead groups. And one of the complaints that my group leaders kept coming back with was shallow prayers. What do you do when a person whose marriage is in trouble asks for prayer requests for their neighbor's cat? Literally happened. What do you do when they will not acknowledge the difficulties that they're experiencing and allow the body to bring grace? Again, within appropriate levels, within appropriate intimacy, within appropriate honesty. But we have a default that says we will isolate and we will distance. The moment we feel at risk, we run. And yet, I want you to see that in Genesis 2, God says of Adam in verse 18, for the first time in all of his work to create, God has been speaking throughout the creation process and saying it is good. But in chapter 2, as God is bringing Adam into an understanding of who he is, and as God is, is relating to Adam, and God is bringing the animals to Adam for the purpose of Adam naming those animals, the end is that there was no helper suitable for Adam. And God said, it is not good. That's a profound statement. God, for the first time in all of his work of creation, has said, it is flawed, it is inadequate, it's broken. 
It is not good for the man to be alone. And you may think that that means that we need the creation of family, which we do. But what God is talking about in that moment is not simply husband and wife. He's talking about community. God says in the beginning of Genesis, let us make man in our image because God himself is a community. God exists in community. God has never, but for one moment, existed in isolation. It's not good for man to be alone because man is an image bearer of God. We reflect God himself in how we are created. And it's not good for us to withdraw. It's not good for us to isolate. So God says, I will create a helper suitable for him. And out of that comes all of humanity. All of humanity. More and more we're recognizing in the evangelical church today the importance of community and that we break the image of God in isolation. We, on the other hand, most reflect God honestly and rightly and in a way that glorifies Him in community. Jesus says to His disciples the night that He's betrayed as He's speaking in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then He says this, By this all men will know you are My disciples if you love one another. That's an experience of community. Love can't exist in isolation. Love can't be communicated in separation. Love is a community experience. And Jesus is saying that the defining feature of discipleship is love. Brothers and sisters, you cannot escape community if you hold on to Christ. You cannot live in isolation and follow Jesus. You belong not only to Christ, but to everyone who belongs to Christ. And so as we look at the issue of conflict, one of the things that conflict does is it breaks that unity. And so as we look at what does it mean to resolve conflict, the thing that we have to do is begin at the point where we understand who we are. Again, be who you are. You are created in community. You are created to live as a body with Christ, who is the head. And so for you to isolate, for you to withdraw, for you to to defend yourself by distance is is to negate your very identity. It is to destroy the honor of Christ. It is to dishonor Christ because you have not loved as He calls you to love. You have not loved as a demonstration of His power. You've not demonstrated your discipleship as a as a disciple of Christ by that love. You've distanced. And so, how do we devote ourselves? How do we endeavor? How do we make every effort to preserve the unity of the the Spirit and the bond of peace? And I think that there's a couple of points that I want to make on that. Number one, this is why overcoming conflict is important. If we allow conflict to grow, if we allow conflict to exist, if we allow conflict to divide the body of Christ, we live outside of our identity, we live as a fragmented individual, and we break the kingdom into pieces. If you want to understand how significant it is that we need to continue in community, I want you to think about Jesus on the cross in John's account of the Gospels. It's really easy for us to see the, the, the pain and, and the price that Jesus paid physically when he went to the cross. 
we can envision and hopefully never experience what it means to have your hands and your feet nailed to the cross. We're familiar with pain. We're familiar with what that pain would be like. And so we can extrapolate and begin to understand some of the physical suffering Jesus endured on the cross. We can understand the dynamics that, that as you hang there by those nails, that, that you have to push yourself up in order to breathe because when your weight is down on your arms, your, your, your lungs are compressed and you simply cannot take in oxygen. And so you have to continue to intensify the pain of those nails because your, your, your inclination for survival tells you you have to breathe. And so we can have some sense of the excruciating pain that Jesus went through. We understand what it's like to recognize that He was naked on the cross and people came to hurl insults at Him. People came to degrade Him. They laughed at Him as He hung there on the cross. But brothers and sisters, the experience of hell was that separation from the Father and the Spirit, whereas Jesus cries out in that last moment of His life, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's important to understand that he yelled. Because a man who's dying of suffocation can't yell. He can barely whisper. But Jesus cried out, we're told, in a loud voice and asked the Father why he had been abandoned. This is the only moment in all of experience where the Trinity was broken. The Father and the Spirit turned their back on the Son in judgment for our sin. And Jesus was alone. He was isolated. He was outside of community, and his very identity had been shattered in order to pay the price for our sin. It is such a terrible moment. And, and yet, whenever... We isolate. Whenever we voluntarily flee from the body, whenever we separate ourselves from brothers and sisters to hide, we're doing exactly what the Father and the Spirit did in judgment on Jesus. Brothers and sisters, community is not an option. Community is not a good thing. Community is life itself. Conflict breaks that community, and conflict is incredibly important to overcome. So what do we do to resolve conflict? Well, in some ways, it depends on whether you see yourself as the perpetrator or the victim. The truth of the matter is that you're always both. You're always both. But our experience is we may have been grievously oppressed or we may recognize that we have grievously wounded another. If, if you recognize that you are in the position of wounding another, then, then what you have to do is you have to see your sin. You have to recognize that making every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in that case is that you confess to the Father and to those that you wounded. One of the things that I do in the counseling that I do is, is I have a paradigm that speaks of a circle of four things. There's, there's heat, there's thorns, there's the cross, and there's fruit. 
It comes from CCEF, Christian Counseling Educational Foundation's materials in the book, How People Change. We experience heat and we respond. We either respond with thorns, which are sin, or we respond with fruit, which is good deeds. If we respond with fruit, there's no conflict, at least from our end. Sometimes when you experience fruit from the hands of another, it feels heavy. Because sometimes what we have to do in order to bear one another's burdens, according to Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Sometimes fruit in our lives feels difficult and oppressive because we're trying to help somebody see thorns. It takes skill, it takes grace, it takes a heart for the other to do that well. And so you may feel like somebody has just dumped a load of bricks on you when what they've done is they've helped you to see yourself. But typically, if, if we are the one who feels offended by another, what we have to do is forgive. So if I'm the offending party, the object of what I have to do to resolve conflict is I have to see my sin and repent. I need a Redeemer. As I repent, then I have to deal with bringing a relationship back. I want you to think about conflict in this way. Conflict involves two people separated with a door in between and the door is locked. I know that you talked about forgiveness in the last couple of weeks, but what happens in that conflict is there's an isolation, there's a breaking of the body. There is a damaging to the body of Christ that unless resolved will lead to an aberration. It will lead to isolation and distance, a fragmented body where the hand flops by itself because it's separated from the arm. <clears throat> the wounded party is responsible to forgive. And I want you to think about that not in, in the way that so many of us do, that forgiveness really equals reconciliation. Forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. Forgiveness means that I will allow the pursuit of reconciliation. The door between us is locked. If I keep it locked, I am an unforgiving person. But I can't, by unlocking it, pull you through. For you see that the, the process is I have to forgive as the wounded party. I have to allow you the freedom to repent and to re-engage. And then as that re-engagement takes place, we need to rebuild trust. And as that trust is rebuilt, reconciliation is experienced. So forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is a part of the process of reconciliation. And we sometimes get confused on that because we watch God not only forgive, but change us to the point we repent. And so we see that God can bring the entire process to pass, but we're not God, and He does not intend for us to relate to one another as He relates to us. He intends for us to forgive and to repent and to restore. That is what it means to love as Christ loves us. And so in seeing our sin, um, Peacemaker is an excellent book, I love the fact that, that your elders said this, this is really part of how we want to proceed. And I'd, I'd encourage you to read the book. But as he talks about repentance, he talks about the seven A's of confession. And I want you to hear that because confession is not simply saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Confession is owning my sin. So in confession, the first A is to address everyone involved. 
I've worked with recovery ministries, and one of the things that we do in recovery ministries is called amends. And an amends means that everybody that I've wounded, I pursue making whole. In this first A of confession, what I'm saying is I need to understand the ground to know who has been wounded. And I need to address everyone who's been wounded by my actions or my words. So address everyone involved. The second A is to avoid if, but, or maybe statements. I, I don't know about you, but, but I never ever want to hear another, I'm sorry if I hurt you. I'm sorry, but you made me do it. I'm sorry that maybe my actions left you in some small semblance of pain. Avoid if, but, maybe statements. If I did it, I did it. The issue doesn't depend upon the impact upon you. The act of what I've done, the words that I said, in themselves are wrong. And I need to respond. I need to own them. Admit specifically. Um, one of the things that we can do is, is admit so broadly that, that our admission is pointless. My wife grew up in a family where, as she, as she experienced conflict, it was always the other person's fault. The whole family was that way. I grew up in a family where, if anything ever went wrong, it was always my fault. Now, I come from a family of six, and I honestly mean it was my fault, not theirs, mine. So I grew up understanding that if there was ever a problem, I would eat the guilt in an instant. It was, it was, it was, it was as if it were filet mignon. And, and as a result, when my wife and I got married, we had this wonderful symbiotic relationship where she knew it was my fault, and I knew it was my fault. We never had an argument, at least not about guilt. It was always my fault. And I would admit to everything. The difficulty was it was a lie. Ephesians 5, Jesus says that he sacrificed himself to present his bride spotless and blameless without wrinkle or blemish. It was wonderfully comfortable for my wife to recognize that I would accept the guilt, but it robbed her. My calling as a husband is to help her to grow, to be the glorious woman of Christ, to present her to Jesus as much as possible, spotless and blameless, without wrinkle or blemish. And if I'm busy taking her guilt, if I'm busy admitting to her offenses, then she never has the call to change. It's a difficult lesson to think and to examine and to look carefully at what you've done to make sure that what you're admitting to is your responsibility. It doesn't say there, leave the rest for the other. It's not a focus on you to say, I did this, you did that. It's a focus on you to say, here's my sin. This is what I did. Acknowledge the hurt. That's the fourth A. Wounds always are a part of an offense. This is the first time we're talking about dealing with the other's feelings. But we have to deal with the other's feelings. We have to care about the damage that we inflict. We need to love them well. And so I have to acknowledge the hurt. Accept the consequences. This is a really difficult one. Because... As, as I'm admitting, what I want is reconciliation. And if I want reconciliation, then what I really want you to do is jump to that seventh day, which is to answer my request for forgiveness and say, we're okay. 
I don't want to have to, I don't want to, have to own the consequences. I don't want to have to, to take those and live with them. And, and we oftentimes will see people who will go through a, a transformation. They'll, they'll change. And it's almost as if they expect that everything from the past now be forgotten because they're not the same person. But the truth of the matter is, if you own your sin, you accept the consequences of your behavior. When I listen to someone in prison and I recognize that they're expressing a faith in Christ, one of the first things I listen for is do they ask for forgiveness and do they ask to be released? Or are they coming in and saying, this is who I am, this is what I've done, and I belong here in prison. The consequences of my behavior are being in prison, and I have to own and, and accept these consequences because this is what I really did. Alter your behavior. Brothers and sisters, if, if you really begin to recognize the sins that you commit and you understand and you confess, then one of the things that has to happen as a fruit of repentance is change. I understand the difficulty of habitual patterns. I understand that there are things that we, that we have deeply ingrained in us. But if we believe the fact that those are deeply ingrained and those are habitual patterns means that we're not responsible to change, we don't understand confession. We don't understand repentance. An essential part of repenting is change. And only after those first six, C's, first six A's have been, have been processed can you ask for forgiveness. It's not something that we do and we come too quickly to say, will you please forgive me? I want you to think of 1 Samuel 15. It's one of those two places where Saul did not live with integrity. The, the situation is this. God has sent Saul to destroy the Amalekites. And there's a long history with who the Amalekites are. It's a well Deserve study. I encourage you to think about it, read about it, and, and look at why God wanted the Amalekites completely destroyed. But God's command to Saul as is, is he sent Samuel to tell Saul what to do was, I want you to kill every man, woman, child, animal. I want you to destroy every possession. I want everything to be destroyed as a sacrifice to me. And Saul comes back triumphantly after his victory proclaims to Samuel, I have accomplished the Lord's command. And Samuel's response is, what then is this bleating of the sheep that I hear in my ears? If you did what God said, why is there a flock of sheep? And Saul even said, by the way, we brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Sort of a professional courtesy, kings don't kill kings. And, and, and God, through Samuel, says to Saul, you have not obeyed my command. You have not followed my dictates. You have not obeyed me. And Saul says, well, but we brought these sheep back as a sacrifice to God. And God says, I desire obedience more than sacrifice. You did wrong. And as Samuel presses that point home on Saul, Saul finally comes to the point and says, you're right, I did wrong, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? He didn't process repentance. He leapt to restoration. So much so that as Samuel is saying, I can't, by the way, you've now lost the kingdom. Early on, when you offered a sacrifice, 
when you should have waited for me, you lost the dynasty. Your son will never be king. But now, having disobeyed God and having brought back these animals and deciding how God should be worshipped instead of letting God tell you what He wanted, you have lost the kingdom. And Saul's response is, please, come sacrifice with me so that the people will know that we're okay. Saul wanted the outcome of God's blessing. He did not want the integrity of being a man of God. And so if you are the one who is who has wounded another, if you're the one who's convicted of sin, these seven A's of confession are important for you as a way of processing honestly what it means to repent. If you're the wounded party, then your call is to offer forgiveness. It, it is to say, I will allow repentance I will allow the process of restoration to continue. I will connect with you. But you have to own who you are. You have to repent. You have to grow and change. There's much more that you could look at. There's many more things in in the book, The Peacemaker, that I would encourage you to read in terms of conflict resolution. But I want to end with this one thought, that, that what Paul says to us, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Brothers and sisters, you have an identity. It is an identity that is community. It is an identity that in order to be the person Christ calls you to be, requires you be connected with brothers and sisters in Christ. For you to be that image bearer of a triune God, you need to be connected to brothers and sisters in Christ. And that means you need to grow in your skills to resolve conflict. Because you have a propensity to isolate. You have a propensity to protect. You have a propensity to hide. And God is not honored by that division. And the body is not effective as an agent of ministry when we withdraw. And so your calling, the calling that Paul encourages you to walk in harmony with, is the calling of being redeemed and forgiven and united. Let's pray. Father, we begin this prayer by calling You Father, which means that we come together as a body, recognizing that You are the Father for each of us. You, by Your fatherhood, unite us. We recognize, Lord, that we are many times in the business of protecting ourselves when, as Christ did, we should trust ourselves to the one who judges justly, who will vindicate, who will convict, and who will sanctify us. And so we pray that you would be at work in a powerful way to sustain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace amongst us. That you would give us the ability to recognize our need to be safe for one another and not to provoke and not to wound, not to distance others, not to judge, but to love. To love in a redemptive way that brings about conviction and change, but sustains unity. Father, I pray that you would be at work here at Grace and Truth to bring about that glorious representation of the community of Christ, building Christ's kingdom and reflecting His glory in how they live in grace. 
how they go through the same difficulties that everybody else goes through, but with a hope that no one else has. Able to give a defense for that hope because people will see it. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that this would be a body of kingdom builders who will love you, who will honor you, who will delight in you, and in whom you will take delight. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that the outcome would be your glory, your kingdom growing, and a delight in us to be a part of your body. In your precious name we pray. Amen.